All right, welcome to another episode of Growing Recovery. I'm Tara Nichols here at the Nichols Center, and today we are interviewing one of our uh, fantastic volunteers. He is a longtime friend of mine and has been working with the Nichols Center for several months now. Um, just an amazing person and just got an incredible story, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Well, um, Thank you for setting up this podcast. As most of you might not know, Ted is our main podcast um, everything from editor to, um, you know, capturing all the sound and helping us promote it and market it and put it out there and among other things that you do here at the center. So tell me a little bit about what the Nickel Center means to you. Well, um, honestly, it's uh, it means a lot. It, uh, it's my, um, let's see, what would I call it? It keeps me busy. It gives me something to do, obviously, which is, uh, I think is very important in recovery is having things to keep you busy. But for me, it's a little bit deeper than that. It's, um, I get to work with families who have had people that have uh, committed suicide and, and I've got to see the after effect and it's kind of a constant reminder the importance of staying in my recovery so that I don't put my family through that as well. So, Well, we are definitely grateful to have you on our team. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, your story. I kind of feel like I was born crazy, so uh, there's that. Um, <laughs> Aren't we all on some level? Yeah, I wasn't, uh, wasn't really sure. I went in the military when I was 18, got out um, a few years later, did fine for a while. And, you know, I feel like looking back, there were markers that should have indicated mental health struggles, but nothing serious enough for red flag for anybody. Then, um, See, in 2017, I had my episode, I guess you could call it. It was a suicide attempt, and apparently during the suicide attempt, I took 240 Percocet 10s, set my house on fire, which I still to this day don't remember. I guess probably Percocet helped with that, and I sliced both my arms open. Um, fortunately for me, the fire had been set because without the fire, I probably would have uh, been successful in my suicide attempt. The fire, I guess one of our neighbors saw and called in and apparently, uh, apparently I also had posted a video on Facebook as well. Um, I vaguely remember the video, but between the video and the, the fire, it alerted authorities to my location and I was able to be, I guess, uh, rescued. I guess it would, at that point it would have been a, a rescue attempt on their end. Um, I spent several days in I see you at Grady. Um, I got out of that and went into a inpatient treatment at Emory. 
let's see, from there, from there I got to spend a nice little amount of time in, uh, incarcerated, waiting on uh, the court system to determine whether or not I was uh, going to prison or going into a mental health program. Fortunately, I went into a mental health program because I would be still several years left on a prison term if I went the prison route. And since then, I've um, I've completed the mental health program and the court system. But I also continue. Um, I still see a therapist. I still continue taking my medication. And I still continue to work with the uh, mental health uh, team at the accountability courts. I think those are all very crucial to my uh, my recovery, staying uh, staying proactive, staying medicated, continuing to talk to professionals that help keep me at a level that I need to be at. Wow, uh, I'm so grateful that um, you were rescued and that um, whether you were conscious or not of uh, reaching out for help, you were able to, um, even if it was part of the process that led to um, your journey being tied up in the legal system. Now you were incarcerated for the arson? Yes. Okay. And so um, the mental health court, tell me a little bit about that and that avenue. It was definitely a journey. Um, I went into the program expecting it to be a probationary program. I was expecting uh, every attempt that they had, I was expecting them to be trying to filter me back into a jail system. And the first few months I was there, that was the mentality that I had. I was, uh, I never really had a history of working with a, a program of that type before. So I figured the, you know, I figured the whole setup would be get them out, keep them in the system, put them back in jail, fine them, charge them. You know, I figured that was uh, going to be the routine and, and it wasn't, um, had to pee in a cup a lot which was really weird because every single time there was uh, somebody standing watching, um, which was, wasn't too much different than the military. Uh, but, but it was, it was the first time I've ever had anyone watch me pee that didn't have a gun. So I guess there's that, um, the, the structure, the schedule, that was, uh, a big part for me. Um, you, they, they have, I think in phase one, we had pretty much a class or something to do every single day of the week. Um, sometimes if you had to take a drug test, you, you would have to get up there for a drug test and you'd have to be there for class. They kept you involved. Um, and as time progressed, I started to see that, uh, especially when I first got my, my only sanction, I'd, uh, I was working an event at the church. I think it was a vacation Bible school event. And I, it slipped my mind that I had a one-on-one -on -one with uh, my therapist there. I ended up getting a sanction and versus going to jail or something like I was expecting, I had to write an essay 
about why her time was valuable because you know my time is valuable too and from there I started to realize that the program was more about helping educate me how to deal with my mental health situation versus putting me in jail and I think once I got to that point it was uh, it was smooth sailing through that program after that so you were pretty hesitant about trusting the people in the program well unfortunately I'm always very hesitant about trusting anybody um, I'm not like I I trust people to a degree but I always keep them kind of at arm's, arm's length and uh, with that program I had to had to realize that um, it was kind of a two-way thing. I had to trust them and they had to trust me. And once that, I guess once that level of trust was established, it made it easier to get up and take the drug test, to go to the classes. And the classes were easy. They were, uh, they taught you things like boundaries and how important it was to, to have boundaries and um, things like that, your emotional intelligence, which was something I'd never even heard about until that program. So it was uh, things like that that helped me to function and realize it. Even still, I still have the book from the program and I'll, if something's making me feel like I want to yeah, get stuck against a wall or something, I'll, I'll pull that out and be like, okay, you know, this is uh, something that I need to be practicing in this moment so wow so you said you started life feeling crazy and um, can you explain maybe before you joined the military some of the things that you felt like you were struggling with well I feel like in my family you don't really fit in if you don't feel a little bit crazy so um, I think we all uh, we all probably have either undiagnosed or one thing or another as far as a mental health issue. Um, but there was a lot of things growing up that made me think that there was uh, probably some underlying psychological. We moved a lot. Um, I remember there was one year I was at Stewart Middle School. I think in sixth grade. So I'm guessing. It's probably between 12 and 14. We moved 14 times in one year. Wow. And that's uh, that's more than once a month in some months. There's, you know, uh, we moved a lot. Um, we had a lot of fires growing up. Um, there was a lot of things that were wrong in our childhood that I think would have been flags now. Um, I guess the thing that always surprises me as an adult is that I have as many uncles and aunts as I do and none of them intervened. None of them uh, were like, they they never questioned the way we were treated as children. But yeah, um, childhood, I feel like it's a wonder that I never had an episode before 2017. I feel like that probably should have had an episode sooner than I did, but uh, fortunately, I, I didn't, I guess. Um, so did you feel like it was the depression that led you to make that decision to um, attempt suicide? Or was there 
something else going on well, for you? It was a combination of depression and my environment. I didn't really know that I was depressed more than um, a normal person feels blue. Like I, I just I thought it was a like a, a normal level of depression I had, but I had a really um, toxic living arrangement. Um, I was living with some people that were, one of them was supposed to meet my friend, and uh, you know, it turned out that there wasn't really much of a friendship there. Uh, I was kind of just a, a paycheck month to month, and I was emotionally abused by them. I was verbally abused by them. Um, and I guess it finally took a toll when the, the week that I uh, had my attempt, I remember that Tuesday, and I, I remember telling the ER doctor that I was uh, suicidal and that I wanted to end my life. And this woman looked at me and told me um, that my, my social problems weren't her problem. My mom was sitting there. Uh, I just I felt. I just I didn't know where where to turn. I had uh, earlier had spoke with my uh, my pain management doctor and asked for a referral for a um, for like a mental health counselor and told him that I was uh, going through some things and that uh, my that I was just in a really dark place in my head never got a referral from him uh so i just i kind of felt like i didn't matter i felt like uh it kind of felt irrelevant um like i i felt like if i were dead that it wouldn't have mattered nobody would have cared and that friday i woke up it was july 14th 2017 it was a nice Pretty day. It was blue skies, no no rain, nothing. Hot day in July in Georgia. And I woke up and uh, my roommates had left. I had filmed the video the night before. Like I remember that part of uh, the day. Um, I remember uh, I had a box cutter. And I, I remember that, and this is like the way we think about things. I remember putting the box cutter back because it was rusty. And I was like, well, if I live, I don't want an infection from, you know. So I went and got a clean box cutter. I, uh, I took my pistol. I went and made myself comfortable in the living room. Got my pills. Um, I pretty much was... Uh, I decided, you know, today will be a good day to die. And I made the first uh, first cut in my arm. And I remember thinking, man, this really, really hurts. So uh, that was that was what instigated the Percocets. And after taking a, a good handful of the Percocets, I remember thinking this still really hurts. So I, I just finished the, the bottle of the Percocets and I took a, a bottle of uh, Tizanidine too, which is a muscle relaxer. And after a few minutes, I started to not really feel much of anything. So I, I made the other, the other two incisions and some point during all this, I uh, 
I set the fire as well, um, or or before. I don't really don't have much of a recollection as to when the fire was, but um, I did that and made the uh, incisions. Sat there and I do remember in in the process. I thought I was like, well, you know if somebody sees the video and shows up at my house, I had planned if, if somebody came through the door, I was going to use my, my pistol and, and shoot myself. I passed out from blood loss before that point. Um, I don't remember much after that, except for um, I woke up at Grady hours later and my parents and my brother and um, my, my best friend were there and I just I remember seeing the, the the pain on their faces and not not much of anything else and I went back to sleep and woke up probably I guess the next day looking back at that day it was a it was a really it was a really dark day and I, I think that uh, obviously depression played a major role in that uh, to get to the point where you feel worthless and devalued to the point of taking your own life. So when you share your story and you look back at the things that led up to that moment, I know you can remember it as this darkness, but Mm -hmm. is there a way you would like to look at it differently? Well, I mean, now I look at it as, um, you know, obviously it was a dark time in my life, but I look at it now as um, an experience that I, I can use to, to make a difference in someone else's life. Um, I guess the, the silver lining is that uh, because of what I did and how everything was done, I was able to to get a chance from the court system that uh, I can't say I didn't deserve because I feel like everybody deserves a, a chance, but um, I was able to get a chance that I didn't give myself. And right. uh, so the, the lining in that is that uh, my situation as dark as it was has been able to be a, a, a light of the situation moving forward. Now, I know because I I knew you before your suicide attempt and we weren't in contact during that period of your life, but um, I knew you before through church. And it sounds like even during your healing process and going through mental health court, church was still an important part for you. Um, Did that that help at all or can can you speak on that connection? church um i can't say that it hasn't helped at all but i honestly feel like in a lot of ways that uh church has uh done more damage to my mental health than uh than not um i've not really had the best experiences with churches um church i'm currently affiliated with i guess you could say is uh i feel like they're a little bit more understanding and uh, 
they're a little less on the, the side of um, mental health being a, a negative thing in the church. And I feel like personally, my experience, uh, the times that I've been involved in church has done far more damage than, mm-hmm. than not. That's why I choose to distance myself from, from church now even. Um, I go to church, um, but you know, I've, I've had to learn boundaries, even with church. Um, you Sometimes you have to tell people no, and it, it doesn't always feel good, but uh, in the long run, it's probably better for your mental health to, to say no sometimes. Those boundaries are really, really important, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and you're right about that. Sometimes, you know, because it's a t- tied to our faith and to our belief system, we can use that to kind of manipulate ourselves into doing more than we would feel comfortable or volunteering more or signing up more than, than um, what, we're, what we should. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right there. Um, could you share a little bit about your military experience and why you were in a mental health court versus maybe perhaps a veterans court? Well, uh, simply put, in Douglas County, we didn't have a veterans court. So um, at the time, mental health court was uh, my only option. I wasn't uh, I wasn't dual diagnosis. I, I didn't fit the uh, I didn't fit the program for drug court because I wasn't really an addict. Um, I didn't have a, an alcohol issue. Um, and while there are several other counties around here that have veterans court, Douglas County is still, I believe they're in the process of setting that up. Um, so for me, it was, um, it was either that or a longer alternative. And uh, when it came down to time, there was pretty much no hesitation to sign the papers. And That's fantastic. Cause yeah, whenever I met you before, that darkness that you were talking about was very like you could you could sense it in you 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 carried a lot of darkness with you and the person you are today I have to say is is a completely different person and um, I mean you're a fantastic friend and a a, a great um, you know community-minded person you're caring and and take excellent care of of you know our center and so we are really grateful you're here um, I would like you to feel like you have a chance to share um, some meaningfulness in your story um, and not just, you know, uh, the deep sadness and the deep darkness, but what would you like people to um, really remember you for? What I would want to be remembered for more or less would be that I actually care about people. A lot of people that uh, know me, I, I tend to... Um, I don't have a lot of friends and it's not that I'm, I'm not friendly to people, but I have a small circle of friends and it's because uh, I get really close to people and when they disappear out of my life, it, it stings, it, it, it sucks, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel good when you lose friends and so because of that, I've become very, uh, very meticulous about who I let into my circle. But outside of that, I would want people to remember me as somebody that cares. Um, you know, I'm an uncle to 
eight nieces and nephews and I love them all to death and there's not much that I wouldn't do for my family um, even the ones that I don't really talk to that often um, the, the kids in the family those are uh, like I'm like the the cool uncle the one that uh, I bet you are has fun with them and you know the, the nerd the one that plays video games with them and goes outside and I just I like to have fun like I, I feel like life is uh, serious enough without uh, being serious all the time and I'm I'm a pretty serious person so that's uh, it's a stretch but I, I try to be as fun as I can and be serious at the same time so and do you have any um, anything you'd like to share with people who could relate to the darkness that you carried before and like what would you tell them well, I would tell them to keep looking for their light. Um, it, it doesn't stay dark forever unless you, unless you intentionally keep it that way. Um, I'm not one that's going to tell somebody, uh, get over it, suck it up. I, you know, I've had all those things told to me over the years. Um, like it's just, it'll pass. Uh, it, it will, but when it, it, it takes, it's a process for it to pass sometimes. And uh, I would tell people when you're in that dark place, uh, keep looking for light, um, you know, be it in a friend, be it in a facility, be it in a program, um, there's, there's help to get you past that point. I find it really um, disturbing and disappointing that, you know, when you were in your in your darkest moments and you were reaching out for help mm -hmm. and and I think a lot of people do a lot of people truly do reach out for help and they they ask the professionals and they speak up and they they cue people in very few people get to that point of of um, attempting suicide and um, with with no sign or no communication that they're at that place mm -hmm. so uh, what what would you say to people um, about that if you're in that situation and you feel that way and you tell somebody and you don't feel like you're getting any results from it tell somebody else keep telling somebody until you get some results um, you know if a doctor doesn't listen to you find another doctor um, if uh, if you call uh, a helpline and they don't listen to you, keep calling your friends. Um, you keep trying until you find somebody that listens to you and uh, is willing to, even if it comes down to it, to hold your hand through the process. Because a lot of times that's, you just need to know somebody's there to go through what you're going through with you, not to leave you to deal with it by yourself. Right. What would you tell those people that didn't listen like or maybe the family members that didn't know uh, didn't know the signs or didn't know what to look for what 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 advice would you have for them well um i guess with my family uh, i've told several of them over the years uh since it happened that um you know, obviously it's, it's not their fault um you know but I've, we've had different um meetings I guess with like uh, NAMI and things like that to help them be more aware of um, what to look for 
um, like isolating and things like that. And with me, isolation is really hard because as you can you can't really tell if I'm isolating or if I just want to be left the hell alone because uh, I, I like to play video games and you know when I play video games I tend to do it in my room by myself right and I'm usually on a headset or something with my, one of my friends but um, so I, I guess with them it's like uh, you had to tell them with isolation look for what I'm doing like if I'm isolating because I'm sleeping a lot then you know you probably need to uh, have a talk with me that it, it could be you know I could be having a, a rough time with things or if I'm isolating because I'm playing video games then just leave me alone because I'm I'm doing what I like to do um, so I guess with, with my family it was that and then to the the professionals um, I'm what I would tell them if I had the opportunity was that uh, when somebody tells you they're going through something as a doctor, you should be a little bit more open to listen to somebody's problems than to just dismiss it as it's nothing. And then especially to go as far as to tell them that their social problems aren't your problem because my, my social problems weren't why I got to the point I was at. That was like a, a minor factor in it and just uh, I would never dismiss somebody because they, they feel like their life has no meaning. So asking those really hard questions, speaking the unspeakable and and if you if you have the sense that somebody um, might really truly be struggling instead of dismissing them, just go ahead and straight up ask, mm-hmm. you know, are you depressed? Yeah, are you depressed? Are you, are you suicidal? Like, yeah. Like are you thinking about you know, do you have feelings that you want to hurt yourself? Um, I got over the years, I'm a very sarcastic person. And over the years, I've joked, like me and my brother both have probably joked about uh, committing suicide or something at one point or another. And uh, for me, I guess I probably joked about it a little bit more than I should have, um, which I mean, it's really not obviously not something to joke about anyway but even in my episode um after it happened it was kind of a it was kind of a joke to me like it was how I coped and dealt with it the doctors when they would ask me why I did it I always had a, a smart ass quick-witted answer to them um it was I guess it was my band-aid for dealing with everything so I guess when uh your family, if they joke about suicide a little more than they should, you, you might should be looking for warning signs. Maybe uh, maybe talk to them, ask them, be like, I know, I know you're joking about this, but is this something you've actually given some legitimate thought to? Is it, you know, is there something we can do as a family to help you not feel this way? That's, that's very good advice. I think a lot of people, they tiptoe around the, the subject of suicide because they don't want to offend people. They don't want to, you know, plant the idea that you should be thinking about something. But the reality is, is that so many of those big feelings, you have to speak out and you have to communicate and you have to create a space where people can let you know if they are thinking about it or if the idea occurred to them. It it's so common, um, even the passive suicidal ideation of, well, I just wish I could go to bed and not, not wake up 
in the morning. Um, that's, that is, you know, some of the first thoughts that occur to people in their depression. Uh, and it leads, if it, if it's left unchecked, it leads to those days where you wake up and you, the will to live is just gone. So, um, what advice would you have for the church? Because I know that, I mean, like I said, we met through church and, um, you're still in, you know, somewhat involved in, in church, um, ministry and kids things and, you know, any way you can, especially with media and so forth. Um, but what advice would you have for people going to churches and how would they better, uh, serve human beings with human issues like mental health? Well, talk about it. Um, that's one of the big things I've seen in churches over the years is uh, it's never talked about until it's uh, like an after, you know, um, somebody commits suicide and then it's, it's talked about after they're gone. Um, I feel like the best thing you can do about it is talk about it while it's... Uh, well, it's not an issue, make, you know, raise awareness. Um, I guess one of the things that I, I have respect for our church is that uh, there's several people in our church that have uh, been through um, like either addiction recovery or mental health recovery. And instead of not allowing us to, to be involved in the church, we've, uh, we've been able to share our stories and, uh, on a few different occasions, they've been either, um, once I was in an environment similar to this where we shared a bit of my testimony going into the holidays, and um, another time we, we did like videos, and I think when you have people, let them share their stories. Uh, a lot of times it's just, it helps to have people listen to what you've been through. And then when you're able to get your story out there, you never know who may come up to you after the fact and say, dude, I had no idea. Like, um, I've been going through stuff myself. So I would just tell churches to put it out there. Right. Yeah, let, let it be known. And, and it's such a um, human experience to have... Um, you know, pain and suffering, anxiety and depression and things that, I mean, trauma, um, I mean, some of the stuff you talked about just in your childhood, I mean, that, that can be very traumatic. And um, growing up feeling like you don't have a place in the world, uh, that's a that's a very human experience. A lot of people go through that. And when you're able to talk and share about it, you can create kind of an environment where people feel seen and heard. And, and that's just such a basic need to, to feel seen and heard and understood. And, and so I'm, I'm super grateful. I, I consider June 14th, July 14th, um, not a good day to die, but a good day for you to live and to start your life over. And so um, I'm so glad you're here at the center. Um, Tell us a little bit real quickly about, you know, some of your hopes uh, for your life now that you're involved in the community and, and what is it you'd like to do? Well, honestly, I'm still kind of learning the what I'd like to do kind of thing. Um, you know, being unsuccessful at my suicide attempt, 
there's still, I, I've had to make a comparison to people before, there's still a part of me that I feel like died with that suicide attempt because I, I don't feel like I'm the same person that I was before that. And um, I guess a lot of people don't look, what people don't know about that is when that attempt happened, between then and the end of, um, say the end of August, I had five attempts in a month and a half time period. And they, they were all pretty, pretty severe to the point of uh, the medical professionals and the, uh, any of the professionals that were involved didn't think that I was going to survive them. And going through that, but like the person that I am now, the goals that I have now, um, sometimes it seems like they, they change every day. Like one day I want to do one thing and another day I want to do another thing. But the, the main things that I know for sure that I want to do is uh, continue doing the work that we're doing here with the center. Um, I believe in what we're doing and uh, I know there's a lot of hurting people in the community that need what we're doing. They need uh, they need to learn how to handle their recoveries and how to be able to stay in recovery. And I feel like different things that we do up here, things that we want to do in the future, are great ways to, to teach people and, and to help them stay in recovery. And I guess no matter what I do in life, um, the main thing that I want to be able to do is uh, play my part in helping people stay in recovery if that's where, where they're at. Um, I, I definitely wanna be um, a, a light to others in, in that dark time uh, or even just in, in their recovery. Um, yeah, so, and obviously my tech stuff, uh, you know, I'll probably always be a tech person, but um, if, if we were like fully self-sustaining and stuff, I would much rather do nonprofit work than, uh, than anything else is more fulfilling than anything I've ever done in life, so. It's fantastic. Wow, like I said, I'm super glad you're on board with us and, and thank you for sharing your story. Um, do you wanna do a shout out for your podcast? Cause um, you have a podcast as well. I do have a podcast and I'm not gonna do a shout out for it cause we've kind of been, uh, We've kind of been lacking on doing stuff lately, but um, this has been the Growing Recovery podcast has been kind of a, uh, I don't know, I, I enjoy it. I get a lot out of uh, editing and, and listening to the people's stories because uh, what you guys hear after it's a finished product is it's one thing to hear it finished, but I get to hear the stories and see the emotions on people's faces. I enjoy doing uh, doing what we do. Right. It's it's um, it is definitely an honor. So, well, um, thank you, and I know we'll have you back, especially as we get our veterans program, you know, running. We'd love to have you back on the podcast to share about that process and um, your veteran service and and everything you've gone through with that, because I know that's probably a whole nother episode. But I'm super grateful to have you, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for having me.